We love him because he loves the Lord. And Christ oozes out of him like he should with all of us. Well, I love that. Praise God. I hope you all were stirred. I hope it reminded you of your own salvation and how God worked in your life and brought you out of a horrible pit or whatever condition your life was in. It's amazing grace that saved a soul like you and me. And so we give God the glory. Thank you, Lord, for our brother Mark for magnifying the grace of God and sharing with us some of your personal life history and how God was behind the scenes moving and working and drew you to himself. And if anyone here has never been drawn to the Lord, might a testimony like that, telling us about Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel and how the Lord can change your life. May the Lord open your ears to hear the message of salvation. Turn with me, if you would, now to the book of Ecclesiastes. This will be the final message on the book of Ecclesiastes. That's why we're titling this sermon, Conclusion, The Conclusion. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation, and the reason for it is because the, uh, the English in most all translations is very difficult to follow because the Hebrew is difficult here, and the metaphorical language here is very complex, but I think the New Living Translation makes it more intelligible to us, so that's why I chose that after giving it some consideration. Okay, 12 verse 1. Don't let the excitement of youth cause you to forget your creator. Honor him in your youth before you grow old and say, life is pleasant. Life is not pleasant anymore. Remember him, that is God, before the light of the sun, moon and stars is dim in your old eyes and rain clouds continually darken your sky. Remember him before your legs, the gods of your house, start to tremble, and before your shoulders, the strong men stoop. Remember him before your teeth, your few remaining servants stop grinding. And before your eyes, the woman looking through the windows, seeing dimly. Remember him before the door to life's opportunities is closed and the sound of work fades. Now you rise at the first chirping of the birds, but then all their sounds will grow faint. Remember him before you become fearful of falling and worry about danger in the streets. Before your hair turns white like an almond tree in bloom and you drag along without energy like a dying grasshopper and the caperberry no longer inspires sexual desire. Remember him before you near the grave. You everlasting, your everlasting home when the mourners will weep at your funeral. Verse 6. Yes, remember your creator now while you are young. Before the silver cord of life snaps and the golden bowl is broken. Don't wait until the water jar is smashed at the spring and the pulley is broken at the well. For then the dust will return to the earth. And the spirit will return to God who gave it. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. Keep this in mind. The teacher was considered wise, and he taught the people everything he knew. He listened carefully to many proverbs, studying and classifying them. The teacher sought to find just the right words to express truth clearly. The words of the wise are like cattle prods 
painful but helpful. Their collected sayings are like a nail-studded stick with which a shepherd drives the sheep. But my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful, for writing books is endless, and much study wearies you out, or wears you out. This is the story. Here is now my conclusion, my final conclusion. Fear God and obey His commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. How many of you were saved before the age of 10? A couple here grew up in Christian homes. Okay, how many were saved under the age of 20? Between 10 and 20, all right. A few there. How about between 20 and 30? 30 and 40, 40 and 50, Ooh. 50 and 60, Ooh. 60 and 70, 70 and 80, 80 and 90. <laughs> we had a 95-year-old here last week, but she's not here today. What's my point? Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. Hands didn't go up. Very few went up after 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90. That's the truth. So when the scripture says, remember now the creator in the days of your youth, because when you get older, as listen to what this, uh, this poem says. The title of it is called, What Think Ye of Christ? This shows you how things mature away from God as you get older. Youth too happy to think there's time enough, sure. Manhood, too busy to think of gold I want more. Prime, too anxious to think toil, worry, and fret. Old age, too feeble to think old hearts harder get. Dying, too ill now to think weak, suffering, and lone. Death, too late to think the Spirit has flown. Eternity, what think ye of Christ? Forever to think, God's mercy is past, and I into hell am righteously cast to weep over my doom, which forever must last. What think ye of Christ? Look up that poem sometimes. It goes through the scale of man's life. And when youth, even youth, they're too happy to think. This time enough, sure. That's the natural impulse of youth. They've got the vigor. They have that vitality about them. Death is not in any way on their agenda. Manhood, too busy to think. Of gold I want more. Prime, too anxious to think. Toil, worry, and fret. Old age, too feeble to think. Old hearts, harder get. Try to witness to an elderly person. Maybe your parents are in those categories where they just are indifferent. They've heard it before. They've, done, they've been there, done that, that kind of an attitude, and they have no interest in the things of the Lord. Dying, too ill now to think, weak, suffering, and lone. It's tough to talk to a dying, sickly person about their need to repent and believe in the gospel. Someone says that true repentance is never too late, but late repentance is seldom ever true. I'm rather reserved about the idea of so many of... 
uh, friends or family, whatever, who get saved on their deathbeds. I'm glad that we can have a hope that they did, but let's not be sure of that. Death too late to think the Spirit has flown. Forever to think, eternity forever to think, God's mercy is past and I into hell am righteously cast. The, the chapter that we're reading here, the 12th and final chapter, begins by talking about remembering your Creator in the days of your youth. And then the following verses gives us a metaphorical description of the way in which the body breaks down mentally and physically. The language is just very, very unique. It describes the, the person in a, as a house. There's different ways this could be translated and the metaphors could possibly change. But I like the one in which it sees these words as descriptive of how the human person breaks down as they age and get older. And some of you are experiencing it, I know, and you've got the aches and the pains and you've got the sicknesses and diseases which we're all destined to have at some point or another depending on how the Lord will take us. So the exhortation here is to remember God in your youth because the time's going to come when you're so occupied with your own condition. Your shoulder hurts, your, your legs are weak, your knees are collapsing, and on and on the house is starting to decay. It's starting to degenerate. The exhortation, you could say, is be regenerated before you're degenerated. The end of the 11th chapter talks about rejoice, O young men, your youth, and go in for all that you can. Enjoy your life, but remember, God's going to bring you into judgment. And this is just how the 12th chapter summarizes that. It begins, too, with youth. Remember God in your youth. And at the end, it says, God will bring every work into judgment, whether it be evil or whether it be good. Same sort of analogy. Interesting, isn't it? The book of Ecclesiastes has been described this way. It's the final analysis and must be understood in the light of the full context of the canon. We've been mentioning that over and over again by canon meaning the rest of the inspired books of the Bible and most particularly the New Testament. The book of Ecclesiastes is not an isolated book and should never, like any other book, should not be isolated from the rest of the books of the Bible. And Ecclesiastes is certainly one of those books. You cannot segregate that. The oft-repeated words of meaninglessness, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. He can't find real meaning in life and it perturbs him to the utmost. He's frustrated and feels like a wise, confused man. But the wise, confused man is ultimately reversed by the one who spoke like no other man. If Solomon's the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, whatever he's going to say is going to come short of the one who is a greater than Solomon, who spoke words that they said of him, never a man spoke like this man. Wisdom personified, magnified, glorified in the person, the work, and the sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus emptied himself of all his divine prerogatives to subject himself to the world under the sun. 
That expression, under the sun, 25 times is mentioned in the book of Ecclesiastes. And for all that Solomon can see under the sun, it only brought in frustration. But Jesus lived a life under the sun. He came to the same place that the confused wise man of the book of Ecclesiastes came and every other human being came. And sometimes we feel too like this globe is a world of confusion. A ball of confusion. The song of the, uh, the old, uh, the black group called the Temptations. Ball of confusion. That's what this world is. But we had one that can see perfectly under the sun and see things for the truth's sake. He subjected himself to the world under the sun to free us from the blinding effects from sin and from the futility and foolishness of the wisdom of this world. He turns everything around. You know, if it wasn't for the grace of God that saved Mark Campbell and everyone here in this room that saved, we too would be in a state of confusion. We would be mixed up. The Bible says the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. There's only two kinds of wisdoms that a person can possess. Either the wisdom of the world or the wisdom that is of God. It tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians, of him, that's of God, are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us, the first thing mentioned, wisdom, then righteousness, sanctification, and so on. But the first thing that is administered to us by Christ is wisdom. That's why it says you have the mind of Christ. We have the wisdom that is from above, that is pure, peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated. The book of James chapter 3 says, what a contrast with the wisdom of what the world has. And if you have the wisdom of Christ, you know him, God has made him to you to be wise in the wisdom that comes from the Lord for us to be able to live in a very crooked world. Solomon in the Old Testament says, who can make the crooked straight? Jesus in the, in the New Testament says, I'll take the most crooked and make them straight. Straight for God. So it's confused and disturbed as your life may be. If you come to faith in Christ and know him as your Lord and Savior, you're on the straight and narrow path. You're glory bound and you have a wisdom that's from above that surpasses anything that could be provided in this world. When I was in college, I had to take a lot of philosophy classes because of my, my major. And I'm telling you, they were all over the place. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I'm not saying that they had nothing to say, but nothing in comparison to the wisdom that our brother said when he felt the Lord was telling him, get a Bible, read a Bible, read a Bible. All the counsel of God is contained in that word, in that word, the word of God. Solomon says life is meaningless and hopeless. The crooked can't be made straight. Wine, woman, and song, they don't ultimately satisfy. He even thinks that God is unknowable. He has no affirmation of immortality. There's no prospect of the afterlife. Which makes me want to comment on a verse here. In verse number 7 it says... For then the dust will return to earth. This is talking about the end of one's life when one dies. The dust will return to earth, just like it says in Genesis, from dust you are and to dust you shall return. But then the next phrase, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. 
this can't mean that everyone who dies goes to heaven. We know that's a fact because Jesus said, if you die in your sins where I am, you cannot come. To those who believe the disciples, he says, where I am, there you shall be. So there's two different destinies, the Christ rejecter and the Christ acceptor, heaven bound or hell bound. The dust, of course, is our earthly component pot that we are made up of. That's really worth, it used to be worth about $15, chemically speaking. That's the value of the human body from a chemistry standpoint. It's probably, with inflation, up to maybe $39, possibly. So, um, But it, the part of you that is the most valuable, Jesus says, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, talking about older people, how that they're inclined to kind of poo-poo, you know, Bible Christianity and being born again and saved and all of that. I tried to witness to an older man one time. He was a a father of of a close friend of mine at the time. He listened to me for a while. Then he said, Gary, you know, I'd rather walk on my heel than save my soul. And he said it very crassly, sarcastically, but seriously. I'd rather walk on my heel than save my soul. Just a smart aleck remark. That's all that was. He, he didn't have the Lord at all in his life and died in his sins as far as I know. Never came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this verse, it says, the spirit will return to God who gave it. We, we all have a dualism in our creatorial composition. That is, we are made up of body and spirit or soul, which I think are equivalent terms. They may have a, have a different nuance, but essentially they are one and the same. The part of us that's the invisible, incorruptible part of us, the spiritual part of us, or the spirit. The Bible talks about the human spirit is the candle of the Lord in the book of Proverbs. So when a person dies, the spirit, which is the life force that's given to man for his being... In him we live and move and have our being, it says in Acts 17, right when Paul was on Mars Hill. It's because of God that we have being. Being means existence, a life force that dwells within us. And so when we die, God takes that life away from them because that's his prerogative. It doesn't mean that the soul or the spirit has gone to heaven. We've got to remember from the a perspective that the author here is writing, he does not have a, a certainty about the afterlife. He doesn't, he can't say like Jesus says, in my father's house are many mansions, or lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, or after this, like Jesus says, there'll be no forgiveness, neither in this world, nor in the world to come. Or when the rich man goes to hell, and Abraham said, son, remember that you in your lifetime had the good things. And Lazarus, the evil things, but now you are tormented and he is comforted. Now. See, in the New Testament, we have an expansion. We have a, a progression of revelation that gives us far greater truth than the Old Testament in Solomon here was able to only go a certain distance. In this book, God is unknowable. Death is the end. We die, he parallels it with animals. We die like a dog. There's no prospect of the afterlife. 
because he can only see things from under the sun. That's his vantage point. I think the hymn writer hit it well when he put it this way that I think can kind of give us a sense of where the author of Ecclesiastes was coming from. If you put him, the author, in the words, I, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they mocked me as I wailed. But now the greater than Solomon could say, Now none but Christ can satisfy. None other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy. Lord Jesus found in thee. The book of Ecclesiastes leaves you like empty. Like what's the conclusion? How do I get filled? What is the end of the end of all of this? We have to flip the page until we come to the New Testament, which gives us the greater revelation. And I don't want to give the impression that the Old Testament is not loaded with salvific doctrine either. Isaiah 45, 22 says, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. But there was no real final conception of how salvation would be accomplished. What would Abraham have perceived when the Lord said that he was going to be made a father of many nations and in your seed shall all nations be blessed. What did Abraham understand about his future seed that from that seed he and all nations would be blessed? It's not until we turn the pages of the New Testament we discover who that seed is as the book of Matthew begins by talking about the birth and the genealogy of Jesus. It traces it back to Abraham who's the father of the seed, which is Christ, who becomes now the blessing for all who trust and believe on him. So Abraham becomes now a father of many nations. So we have varieties of nationalities here. A lot of mixed breeds too. But if we went back a couple of hundred years ago, your family members came from England, they came from Europe, they came from Africa or wherever, and they were pretty much pure breeds then. But the end of the story is that God is going to, is calling out of the nations the people for his name. And then ultimately in glory, every kindred, tribe, nation, tongue, and people are going to be bought by the precious blood of the Lamb of God. And together there's going to be a, uni- a unity of nationalities of people because of the blood of the Lamb of God. The blood of Abraham, excuse me, of Adams from which we all descend puts us in the human family. But the blood of the second man, the Lord out of heaven, his blood that was shed, believing on the blood that remits sin, puts us into another family and we're united with every other child of God from any other nation under the sun here in the world. A greater than Solomon is here. You know, in 1 Corinthians 2.9, this is another misunderstood verse. We say this because we, we it's true we haven't, we haven't seen the consummation of everything. Peter, sisters are going to be studying Peter. I'm sure Jillian's up on this where he says, Whom having not seen, talking about Jesus Christ, you love. And unto you who believe, he is precious. How can you believe in something you don't see? Well, that's where Hebrews 11.1 1 comes in. Faith, the sub, uh, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence or the conviction for things not seen. You've never seen Christ. Anyone here has never seen him. But by faith, 
which is given to you as a conviction, as evidence for the things not seen and for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in chapter 12, it begins by saying, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. How can we look and see Jesus, who's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, because the Lord has given us spiritual eyes of faith to be able to behold him. Praise God for the gift of God, which is eternal light through Jesus Christ our Lord. By grace you are saved through faith that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Praise God for that gift of faith that he gave you to be able to see Jesus and love him and praise him and worship him and be able to lift your heart and hands to the Lord and say, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. We have come to the heights of praise in the New Testament. Getting back to 1 Corinthians 2, 9, it says, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. And we stop that verse and we say, boy, there's more to come. And I agree, there is more to come. What will it be like? Some of you are, and all of us that are getting older are getting closer to the end of the line. And we don't know when that end of the line could be. It could be for youth in this room or a middle-aged person in this room. And certainly that's going to be quite a climax. What a jubilee that will be. Paul describes it as to be with Christ is far better. Sometimes we think this world is so good. and There's a lot of wonderful things about it. Family and friends and church and songs and on and on. It's, it's, it's a... There's a lot of pleasure here that we enjoy, but to be with Christ is far better. So what does it mean, I hasn't seen or heard neither? You know what that means? Up to this point in the chronology of the Bible, it had not yet been revealed of what a child of God would be able to possess. So it goes on to say, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered the heart of me the things which God has prepared for them that love him, but God has revealed them unto us. How? Us is in contrast to the Old Testament or pre-New Testament people, has revealed them unto us. How? By the Spirit. We have received the Spirit in fullness without measure. So we understand things that the book of Ecclesiastes author did not understand because he's only looking at it from under the sun as a confused wise man. But one came from the other side of the sun into the world and he gave us words as he, as it says, thou hast the words of eternal life. That's the greater than Solomon. And brothers and sisters, might you be encouraged to follow him? Someone put it this way. This is how you want to live your life. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Yes, fear God. Number one, without the fear of God, There's no understanding of God. Even the thief on the cross said to the other thief, Do you not fear God? They were on the verge of passing into eternity. If there was nothing in the afterlife, was there anything to fear? But there was a reality on the part of the thief that we're going to go somewhere. We're going to meet our end. That judgment is at the end of the end. How then should we live? What is the conclusion? Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And here's another way of putting something like that in these words. How do you want to live your life? 
Know where you came from. Know where you're going before you die. Know before whom you're going to stand before in judgment that you have to give an account to. Three points. Know where you came from. Know where you're going. And know before you die who you are going to have to stand before in judgment to give an account. That's the last verse of Ecclesiastes 12.14. Can somebody read that verse to me out there? Anybody, shout it out. God is going to bring everything, everything, everything to a final judgment. But praise God, God's judgment against my sin, he will not twice demand. If Jesus died for my sins, how can I die for my own? Jesus paid it all. Christ has by one offering sanctified forever them who belong to him. For by one offering he has sanctified forever those that belong to him. So yes, we are all going to be scrutinized by the Lord. It shouldn't be something that scares us, but it should be something that concerns us. Because we have a tendency as Christians, Bible-believing, Christ-loving God-worshipping children of God, we have a tendency of sort of overlooking the God that we're going to be meeting someday. And I'm not saying that to try to make you fearful or, or try to put a legalistic mindset into you, but I'm just saying these are realities. We're going to have to meet the Lord. And we're told to be in the Spirit so that we won't be ashamed before Him at His coming. I think we could all use that exhortation, couldn't we? Because, again, some, sometimes our blinders are on and we see life from under the sun like a Solomon does and our eyes need to be widened so that we see the light that the Christ of God has brought down from heaven so we can see a better panoramic view and that we can understand that life is short, death is sure, sin is the cause, but Christ is the cure. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for reminding us about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that the truth is in Jesus. And Lord, we need not to look to any other. My hope on nothing less is built than Jesus and the blood he spilt. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on his blessed name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. Lord, if anyone here does not have that foundation of Christ with below them. We ask, O oh God, that your word would penetrate their hearts, that you would give them a vision of the cross to behold the Lamb of God and trust Jesus even now as they hear these words. May the Holy Spirit grip their souls, convict them of their sins, and open their eyes to the marvelous grace of God displayed at Calvary. Hear our cry, Lord, as we give you glory and honor in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.